We're continuing in the study from Exodus, uh, reading from Exodus 2, verses 11 through 25. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? he asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become, become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God and Father, as we come now to your word, I pray that you would be forming and shaping us to be the people that you have called us to be showing us your work in our lives. That you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under the authority of your word. Be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we're working through the book of Exodus, here is the story so far. If you've missed the last few Sundays, Israel lived in Egypt for almost 400 years. And they'd been enslaved by these cruel kings and put in bondage and things kept getting worse. And ultimately the king institutes this program where he's killing Israelite baby boys in order to try to cut down their population. And in the middle of this, Moses is born and God provides miraculously for the birth of this child who's going to ultimately come and save Israel. And so he is saved and he grows up as a part of Pharaoh's household. And if we're reading the story, I think this is the point now where we're ready for the action to start. For Moses to deliver Israel. I mean, that's what he's here to do. And our reading for this morning starts with one day when Moses had grown up. Which is important to bear in mind as we've noted the passage of time here. Again, Moses is born and we're like ready to go. And it's 
40 years, according to other parts of the Bible, and now he's an adult, right? And nothing has happened yet. And I suppose that um, we might think, okay, well, I guess he's got he's to grow up. You know, a kid can't lead the revolt against, you know, against Pharaoh. So he's an adult now, and we're primed and ready. But still, um, in this story this morning, that, um, that moment of deliverance doesn't come. Instead, it focuses in on Moses at 40 here as he's grown to adulthood. And it tells about a couple of stories, really, that are mixtures of success and failure in his life. We get this glimpse of him along the way, and it's a mixture of failure and success that is still setting the stage for who Moses is about to become. I remember as a kid hearing fables. Uh, You know what a fable is? Like a story with a simple moral, and every character has a clear purpose and fits a stereotype, and everything fits together to make that moral point. And people often, I think, come to the Bible expecting it to tell stories like fables. And so you see a good guy and a bad guy and some simple events. And at the end, you ask the kids and say, what's the moral of the story, kids? And they all, they all say, well, slow but steady wins the race. Or don't cheat at cards with the mafia or whatever the moral of the story is. But it's got this simple point. And the Bible almost never works that way. What it tells is not fables, but these real messy human stories that involve sin and righteousness and success and failure. And I was thinking about that as I think about the story we're about to dive in this morning. But let me say, first of all, I think that's actually a good thing that the Bible doesn't tell fables. First, because it just speaks to the fact that Scripture is telling the truth. People um, sometimes use the messiness of stories like this one and how they're not always clear, as if that's somehow a mark against the Bible, as if it's a problem. But the thing is, I mean, life does not work in this way like fables, right? Where everything is neat and tied up with a bow and obvious. And the messiness of stories like this one and the ambiguity of parts of them really speak to the fact that these are truthful. But more than that, I think that we gain real hope from these messy stories because we see how God's work is woven through the messiness of our world. That's what we learn from the Bible story, to see how God is at work in all kinds of situations in life. Not some simple moral principles, but the way that God is moving. With that said, let's look at this particular story and see that particular mess. In this story, we see two failures and then two hopeful notes. That's the way it kind of unfolds. There's two different failures and then two hopeful notes. And the first is a failure of deliverance. A failed gesture towards deliverance. So if you start in verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, remember? But Moses also clearly sees himself and understands that he's an Israelite. And his biological mother, who helped raise him, probably had something to do with that. Maybe even Pharaoh's daughter taught him that reality. But he has this clear sense of his heritage. And he goes out to his people, and he looks on their burdens. And when the Bible talks about looking in that way, it doesn't just mean like he noticed it, right? It means that he cares. He's, he's seeing it. I have a friend who to communicate that he cares for you, would often just say, like, I see you, man. And, you know, it's that kind of thing, that, that he's, he's noticing their burden. And, um, and specifically, he sees an Egyptian beating brutally a Hebrew slave. 
one of his people, the text repeats. So Moses is feeling like this is one of my people. And so what does Moses do in verse 12? He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses kills the Egyptian and buries the body. He kills the guy. And that is a good example of why I say the Bible doesn't tell fables, because it is really hard to know what to make of Moses killing this Egyptian. Some people view this as just like murder and just simply evil, but that's probably not how we view it. The text doesn't pass judgment on the act in that way. And when Stephen, in the book of Acts, he's the first Christian martyr, and he's recounting God's work of salvation through history, he says in Acts 7, And seeing one of them being wronged, Moses defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So the Bible doesn't see this as just sort of unjustified killing, right? Moses sees this Egyptian potentially beating a Hebrew slave to death, and he steps in to try to protect him and ends up killing the guy. But at the same time, there is something sketchy about how it unfolds too, right? It's also not viewed as a sort of heroic act on the part of Moses. I mean, you look at it, and it says he looks this way and that before he steps in to help out the Hebrew slave, right? He's not, he's not you know, courageously standing for justice. He's kind of like, is anyone going to see me? Okay, okay, then, then I'm going to step in. And so, um, and so while, um, I mean, that's not the posture that you take if you're, kind of courageously pursuing moral reform, right? So Moses does step in to defend this person and is identifying with this person, um, but he isn't doing it in a way that will bring true deliverance. So what do we make of that first beat? How are we supposed to understand Moses? (coughs) I think the answer is that we are supposed to see two things about Moses at once, and that's why it's kind of ambiguous, because there's something good about Moses in this story, and there's something that's problematic. The good thing is that we can see in this already the seeds of the man that Moses is going to become. His feeling about the situation is not wrong. He sees this injustice being done, this Hebrew slave being beaten, and he feels angry and aroused and like he should do something, and that is good. That is that sense of justice that's going to carry Moses all the way through this story as he comes and stands before Pharaoh and defends God's people. At the same time, though, we see that the way that he pursues justice in this story is probably wrong. Less so about the killing of the Egyptian. Like we said, that's kind of ambiguous, but more so in the fact that um, the action is wrong Because even though it comes from that right sense of justice, Moses is acting out that desire for justice in a way that cannot possibly bring change. It's not in God's ways. Um, It's not the way that God is going to call him to help Israel escape. And really, like, what is this doing, right? There's no scenario in which this actually helps Israel's situation in Egypt. And there are totally scenarios where it puts both Moses and the other Israelites in danger. Which is a reminder to us that even with the right intentions, we need to be careful about how we seek to do God's work. Even though we all know that the ends don't justify the means, there are lots of times that we act as if they do. As if, as long as our intentions are good, whatever we do is good. And that is not the case. We need to pursue God's goals in the world, but we also need to do it in God's ways and in God's time. That's Moses' problem in this story, right? He's pursuing a good goal, 
but not in the ways or the timing of God. I mean, I, I just think about that in my own heart, because in so many ways, I think I'm often tempted to do the same thing. Like, I want, I want somebody to act a certain way or to change, to make a certain choice or change how they're living, and I might want that for their good, really, right? I, I mean, there are other times that maybe I want it for some other reason, but where my real goal for that person is their good. But that does not make it okay, then, to pursue that good in, in ways other than God's ways or God's timing. Like, I might try to badger or threaten that person into changing. I might try to criticize or manipulate them to try to get them to change. And none of those ways are ways that God calls us to treat people. And I often do that because what I'm feeling is impatient because I want them to change right now. Um, that, that, that I resort to that behavior because I'm like, I just, I can't take this anymore. I want you to change how you're living. And again, that's, that might be for good reasons. But in the name of forcing that change to happen now, I can often end up hurting people worse than they actually are. Because I'm not waiting on God's timing, not constraining myself to God's ways of seeking that person's good. I can easily end up damaging them. One of the hardest but most important skills that we need to learn as Christians is patient obedience. Patient obedience, which is to say that we are responsible to be obedient to God in the present. And there are many times where that requires us to then patiently wait for God to bring the outcome. Our job is to walk faithfully with him. And he alone is the one who will ultimately bring change in his timing. So that's Moses's kind of failure in the story. His failure to wait for God's deliverance. But that's joined with another failure in the next few verses, and that is a failure of recognition on the part of Israel, a failure of recognition. So Moses kills this Egyptian, but he does it hoping that nobody sees him. Uh, However, then, when we pick back up in verse 13, it says, When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion?" Now notice, again, this is Moses' same sense of justice, right? He has to go in and get involved and step in to try to help resolve this dispute. Probably he sees these two Israelites fighting, and he's like, guys, what are you doing? Like, Egypt is enslaving you. Why in the world are you fighting each other? But he steps in, and the guy who started the fight has this comeback for Moses. He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So somebody saw what Moses had done, and news of it is spreading like wildfire through the Israelite camp, right? It's in the gossip vein now. Moses killed an Egyptian, and this guy uses those rumors as a weapon against Moses. Here's what's important to recognize. This guy is in the wrong in what he's doing. Moses killed this Egyptian defending one of the slaves— And while that was not necessarily the best idea, this guy should see it as a sign that Moses is seeking a good thing, that he has this desire for justice. But instead, he uses Moses' intention to do this good thing as a way to hurt him. Stephen, again, when he summarizes the story in Acts 7, this is how he recounts it. He says, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So Moses is trying to help his fellow countrymen, but they turn on him. 
even if his actions were misguided, they should have recognized Moses' heart, but they don't. And the result is that Moses then has to ultimately flee into exile. So verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So the end result is Moses does this good deed and ends up losing everything and fleeing to a faraway country. Now again, like we said, Moses, there's a sense in which Moses seems to be in the wrong in this story. Uh, but it's also true in this story that Moses' fellow Israelites, and especially this, this Israelite who's kind of standing in for some of them here, are in the wrong. Um, they should have looked at Moses and seen this brother who's trying to help them, and instead they look at him with jealousy and contempt. And there is a warning and an encouragement in that for us as well, in that failure to recognize Moses. The warning is simply, don't be like that. <laughs> when people try to help us, when they seek to be kind to us, we should recognize their good intentions and be gracious to them, even if they aren't very good at it. And the encouragement goes along with it. It is that we should seek the good in people's actions. We should seek what is good in their actions, rather than being suspicious or jealous or using their failures against them. We said a minute ago that using good intentions does not make me right, right? And that's important. We need God's ways and God's timing. But it is also true that we should honor and appreciate the good intentions of others. Even if someone does not follow God's ways and God's time, we should be as gracious and understanding towards them as we can. I think about in my own life the way that different people have handled things Um, significant griefs that we've had, like when Rebecca was in the hospital or Elizabeth's cancer. And you you hear, people always comment about how there are people that say kind of like hurtful or, you know, or insensitive things to you when you're in the middle of grief. And that is true. It does happen. And, um, And all of us should try not to make those comments to those people. But at the same time, one of the things that I've had to learn over the years of that is that it is also important for me to be gracious to those people, even when they are being insensitive in what they say. That, um, that even if they probably shouldn't have said that, my job is not to get angry and point that out to them. My job is to hear it and say, man, that, that could have been said better, but I appreciate the heart behind that. I appreciate the desire that this person has to express their care, even if they aren't expressing it in the best way which is an example of this principle that really lies behind both of these truths. The principle is that we should not make excuses for our sin, but we should be quick to excuse the sins of others. We should not make excuses for our sins, but we should be quick to excuse the sins of others, which is the opposite of what we instinctively do, right? I am quick to make excuses for my sin. But when I see somebody else doing something wrong, it is, it is condemnation immediately. Scripture calls us, though, to own our sin and be gracious to others. Just one concrete example of that. I found myself reflecting on this week. There are a number of places the Bible calls us to overlook offenses, for example. Here's a couple from the book of Proverbs. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Or another, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he repeats a matter, separates close friends. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. 
which is to say someone does or says something that is wrong or hurtful to us. Um, And it's not that we pretend it isn't wrong. We recognize that it's an offense, right? But then we choose to overlook it. What Scripture says is that our job is to choose to be as gracious to others as we possibly can be. True character is demonstrated not by defeating people, but rather by forgiving them. So that's two failures, right? We have Moses and we have this Israelite, both in a real sense failing. And at this point in the story, it looks pretty bad for Moses. But then things start to take a hopeful turn. There is this triumph, both of deliverance and recognition, that is set beside these failures. There's a triumph of deliverance and recognition. It starts in verse 15, actually. If you read it again, when Pharaoh heard, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, if you're a visual person, um, let me do this to help you get a sense of where Moses went. So here's a map of this area, and here is Egypt, all right? Um, And then the Holy Land, Canaan, is up over here. That's where Israel ultimately ends up going. And then Midian is down there, all right? So there's, Moses is nowhere near the place that God's taking him. And not only that, he crosses, that's the Sinai Peninsula in the middle there, and it all looks like that, okay? So for like 350 miles, he treks across that kind of desert, weeks of that kind of travel down to Midian, nowhere near the place that God has promised to his ancestors. And it says he gets there, and then he sits down by a well, which would have been a normal kind of center of a community public place when you live in a desert like that. And then we see another situation develop. The priest of Midian had seven daughters, it says, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And just to be clear, these are Midianites now. Moses isn't in Israel anymore. These are not Israelites. And this priest of Midian is not a priest of the Lord. But he has seven daughters, and they come to get water for their father's sheep. The way it would work in this world is you'd have, like, a well, and then you'd have, like, stone troughs, and you'd have to haul buckets of water out and dump them into the troughs, and the sheep would come drink. But there's an issue. The shepherds came, it says in verse 17, and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So these women were vulnerable to to being taken advantage of by these men, and the shepherds in the area come and chase them off. Perhaps it's simply because the shepherds wanted to water all of their sheep first. Maybe it's just out of mean-spiritedness. But regardless, it's another injustice. And what's Moses going to do, right? We should know it by this point in this story. He decides to step in and intervene. And he throws down with the shepherds and drives them away. And not only that, but then he pulls up the water for for these um, women and, and waters their sheep for them. And here's the thing, that, like we said, that is the exact same Moses that, that we've had this whole story, right? He's got this sense of justice and this need to step in and intervene. He keeps doing it. Um, but this time, the daughters go back to their father, um, and it says in verses 18 and 19, when they came home to their father, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. So um, keep in mind, so the Egyptian is Moses, right? Don't, don't be confused. I mean, Israel doesn't exist as a separate nation or anything, and Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. So he looks like an Egyptian, but they say, this guy has come and rescued us. And in this world, there's this strong sense of hospitality that honor demands that you show appreciation and stuff when somebody does something for you. And we see this kick in for the priest of Midian in verse 20. 
He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. So Moses is welcomed into this household. He ends up marrying one of the daughters and presumably living as a part of this priest's household. Just a note, first of all, because I was asked about this last week, actually. Um, People seem to think that the Old Testament forbids Israelite people marrying non-Israelite people. And that is not true, right? Zipporah is not an Israelite. She's a Midianite. But the the Old Testament does not condemn that. It does forbid intermarriage with the Canaanites, which are the people in the land that Israel's coming in to inherit. But, um, but that's not true in some general way. Discussing why with the Canaanites would be a much bigger topic than we're going to go into this morning. But um, we just realize that this is permissible. And indeed, we see in a story that we're going to look at in a few weeks, Zipporah actually converts to um, the Israelite religion and saves Moses, in fact, because of her faith in that. Um, but Moses, in this situation, also highlights something else that's really striking about this. And this is why, in a sense, it's almost a triumphant story. In the first place, Moses steps in seeking justice, and this time it works, right? This time, he does deliver these daughters. And not only that, but we see these Midianites recognizing and appreciating that. Even though Moses is a foreigner, there's probably meant to be kind of a rebuke in the way the story plays out for the people of God that we should hear in the way that it's these people outside of God's people who recognize this in Moses. And more broadly, this story is hopeful to me because it reminds us that even in the messiness of life and even for all of Moses' imperfections, there is something good about his desire for seeking justice in this story. It's good that we try. (laughs) Um, We don't have it in our power to bring true and ultimate justice or to fix everything, but that does not mean that there is not a goodness in us trying to be faithful in the places that God has put us. The Bible calls us as Christians to have the attitude that Moses displays in these verses. The way the prophet Malachi puts it is to love justice and show mercy. And that's true big picture, and that's true small picture. The Bible calls us to care for those who are disenfranchised or who are poor or who are in need of help, to stand up for those without a voice. That's all biblical, and Moses really throughout the book of Exodus displays that kind of attitude. And when I think we think about it in our world, there's two directions we can go wrong when we think about that calling. In one direction, there are people who miss the kind of messiness and imperfection of how this calling works or who fail to appreciate that we have to pursue it in God's ways and God's timing. And there are people who think that if we just got our act together, we could fix everything, and the world would be perfect, and nothing would be wrong, and we could solve all the world's problems. And that is biblically a flawed idea, because basically because it's looking to human beings to solve the problems that human beings and their sin have also created. Right? We cannot be both the cure and the disease. But... The other problem, and it's the one that I think many of us are more prone to, is to say, well, because that's not true, because things are messy and hard and complicated, we might as well not even try. We might as well not even try to help people or do what we can to help them out. Um, and, And that is also wrong, because while we can't look to our efforts to solve all the world's problems, we are called to do what we can to help people. We're called to do what we can. 
And I know that discussion bumps up against politics, and I have no interest in talking about those specific ways that debate works out, because my job as a minister is to interpret the Bible and not economics or political theory. But the thing to bear in mind for all of us is that however our political convictions convictions make us think that that's supposed to play out in the world, and we're going to have real differences about that, we all need to take personal ownership of that call to help people, to seek justice and care for those in need. We should be looking for ways with our time and our gifts and our money to do what we can to care for those um, that can't stand up for themselves, just like Moses does. We should do that, even though we recognize that it won't always work, and it will be messy, um, and it won't always be rewarded. That is part of life in this world, and that isn't our problem. Our problem comes when we let that mess kind of be an excuse not to show that care for justice. But that said, we do that recognizing that there is a hope for true deliverance that lies beyond us. In the face of all the problems in our world, there is a hope for true deliverance, and that hope rests in God. So far, we've had Moses, just being Moses in this story. And here's how Moses ends up on his own efforts in verse 22. He has a child. It says that his wife Zipporah gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses, he has a child, which is a good and joyful thing, and he has a home. But at the same time, he is far away from this place that he thinks God needs him to be. So much so that he names his child stranger, right, to, to reflect that distance. Moses's desires for justice for his people have failed. But then in verse 23, during these many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue came up to God. So more days pass, years and decades, in fact, as we, as we kind of get ready for the next part of this story. And the current Pharaoh dies and a new one replaces him. But whatever hope Israel might have had that that political change would improve their situation doesn't come. They're still groaning under the burden of slavery. But then we're told that that cry came up to God. And in verses 24 and 25, And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So Moses failed. But God is now stepping into this story. And God cares. That's, look at the language. It says God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. That is stressing God cares deeply for the plight of Israel. In fact, in many ways, it's almost calling back to the beginning of our story. Moses looks and sees the burden of the people of Israel, and he remembers them as his people. But now it's God who's looking and seeing their burden. He's not—the language of the text is not saying that God somehow forgot them, just to be clear— but it's rather calling us to recognize that God is near and caring with his people. He's not like up in heaven, watching Netflix and ignoring their plight or something. But he's paying attention to them. He has not yet worked to deliver them. That's still coming. But he does care. And in many ways, those final verses are setting up what's about to happen in the next few weeks. Like this is, this is the point in the story where I just want to step forward because now— in, in chapter 3, God's going to step in and speak to Moses and start this plan of salvation. But right now, recognizing even 
as that hasn't happened yet, that God is attentive to Israel, I think already that reminds us of a couple of things. First, it reminds us that God cares for us in the middle of the mess. From the perspective of the Israelites that are under Pharaoh's yoke, it had to seem like God was absent. Years and years pass, and they're waiting for deliverance and crying out, and it doesn't come. And I think our temptation and their temptation in such a situation must have been concluding that in this season of waiting and groaning, that is somehow an evidence that God doesn't care, that he's not interested in me. But we know from this story that that isn't the case, that God is still watching and shepherding Israel, even in the midst of the mess. And indeed, part of the reason that he doesn't show up in the way Israel expects is the second truth, which is that God is working out his plans in the middle of the mess. That those years of waiting, in a real sense, they exist because God is at work preparing his salvation for Israel. That, that God is developing Moses over these decades into the person that will ultimately come before Pharaoh and bring his people out. It's events like the ones we read this morning that in many ways are preparing Moses to be the servant that God is going to form him to be. But it takes time. Saying that the world is a mess does not mean that God is not also at work. He is, and it is often his work that gives us hope um, that we have, that that our efforts are going to do anything in the middle of this mess in the first place. Part of our calling and stepping out in faith is that we just say, man, things are messy, and I don't know whether I'm going to see God move, but if I don't obey him, if I don't seek to step out in this way, I certainly won't. If I do, sometimes I will. And more than that, it is often the things that in the moment seem like the mess that God is actually using to work his good and his salvation in us. God, God somehow draws straight with our crooked lines is the way that I remember hearing it once said. That, that it is the very things that we feel like signal God's absence, the waiting and the struggling that he's actually using in the end to work out his salvation. And that's the third truth, which is also important. That God does come in deliverance in the end. We are all in the middle of the story of life still. That's the situation for all of us. We don't know what the next page holds. And the Bible doesn't always tell us. Uh, God, um, I don't know, you know, tomorrow or next week or whatever, how he's going to move. And there's no promise that the mess is going to end then. But what scripture does tell us is what the final chapters of the story hold. That God will move in a way that heals the world's brokenness and bring justice and restore what is wrong with the world. And that's really what the book of Exodus is calling us to recognize, which is that what God does in history with this specific people of Israel in bringing them out of this captivity and through the wilderness and ultimately to the promised land, that what he's doing with them in history is also the story that God is telling with history as a whole. That God is moving in such a way that he is bringing salvation in the present and will finally and fully bring that salvation to fruition in the future when justice is finally done and sin is finally removed from the world and life finally blossoms out from the graves. That God's care for us will ultimately be brought to completion. For now, though, we and Moses and Israel both have to wait. Moses is waiting for that deliverance far from home, 
feeling like a stranger. Israel is groaning and crying out under its load and feeling abandoned. Their hope and ours has to wait in a sense for next week when we see God come and reveal himself to Moses for who he truly is. We anticipate that. Let's pray. God and Father, as I reflect on the mess of my own life and the ways that I often long to see you move, I give thanks that you are at work in the midst of it, and I anticipate the great deliverance you will bring at the end of it. I pray that you would be near to us as your people, calling us to love and care for this world and those around us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.